This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Richard Dennis. Richard is the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute in Canberra. He joined me for the final instalment of Uncommon Sense's Federal Election Policy Series. This conversation was on the economy. Richard debunks the election econobabble on real wages growth productivity, inflation, and much more. He explains and evaluates the economic policies of the major parties and minor parties in this federal election. These policies include managing the economy and the federal budget, increasing housing access for first home buyers, and raising the minimum wage to keep up with the cost of living. Richard also challenges some of the mainstream narratives around the perceived threat of the independence, as well as whether the Liberal Party really are better economic managers than the Labor Party. Richard looks at the economic facts and gives us his assessment. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome back onto the program a listener favourite, Dr Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, and he's joining me for the final instalment of this special series I created called the Federal Election Policy Series, Emphasis on Policy. And in this particular instalment, we're going to be talking about the economy. We actually had the great pleasure of speaking with one of Richard's colleagues last week, Richie Merziana. We were talking about climate change in that chat and also energy policy. Richard, in this chat, we're going to be covering all manner of things, including some of that election econobabble, which comes up and did definitely come up in the wages growth and inflation conversation last week. And we've also got plenty of areas to cover in relation to the major parties and even some of the minor parties in regard to superannuation and property and the like. So I welcome Richard now. Hi there, Richard. And how are you doing? Oh, great, Amy. Thanks for having me back on. And uh, yes, uh, what a a big week to do it in. Yeah. Well, it was intentional. I thought, finish it off with a bang and uh, (laughs) have Richard's thoughts front of mind when people are making their decisions, because you do always have a way of clarifying things, I think. Well, I think, you know, the major parties have clarified things quite nicely. I mean, everyone started off the campaign saying how similar they were, and now we've got some really big differences on everything from foreign policy to wages to now superannuation and housing. So, yeah, I think who we elect determines which problems we solve and who we elect determines how we solve those problems. And, yeah, for, for those that thought a month ago it didn't matter, uh, I think there's plenty of differences for all to see at the moment. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because I see the differences and I know that plenty of observers do, but Fran Kelly on the ABC put to Penny Wong, I think, yesterday that she's hearing younger people say, oh, well, they're all the same. There's nothing really different between them. And I've heard some Vox Pops saying that too. Perhaps it's because people aren't really tuning into the policy and are really just seeing the kind of attack ads and the arguments. But Senator Wong was very strident in her defence of Labor, pointing out those key differences, which you have just done very well. But it does seem that even the media can perpetuate this idea that they're kind of as bad as each other in different ways, thinking about their conduct, the way that they spend money on marginal seats. But even in that area, in the spending on marginal seats, the coalition 
opposition are way ahead of Labor in the so-called pork barrel metre that The Guardian has put up. Yeah, that's right. And unfortunately, I think this is a really long-term problem that's going to take quite a while to solve. But, you know, let's let's kind of put it really bluntly. Neoliberalism for decades has told young people that government's bad, that markets are good, that government spending's wasteful, that if we just privatise everything, life would be better. And the best thing governments can do is kind of cut taxes and sort of leave you to your own devices. Now, I don't believe that for a minute, and I also don't actually think that that's what conservative governments have done. But that rhetoric of government is just this burdensome, inefficient organisation, that's the dominant message that young people have grown up with. So I don't think we should be too surprised that after basically their entire lives never hearing someone really articulate a positive vision for government and uh, and talk about how changes in government policy, like the introduction of free university by Whitlam, uh, like the introduction of Medicare by Hawke in the 80s, how transformative that could be for people's lives. And the idea that government might actually solve big problems rather than cause them is just foreign to young people. So Firstly, I think that's one reason they tend to tune out. Uh, And then the other is, of course, politics in Australia, the way the media represents it, really does look like two middle-aged blokes yelling at each other. Now, that's not what democracy is about. That's not what parliament's about. But interestingly, it's it's not just the the, the Liberal Party that's kind of been uh, outflanked by these high-profile, mainly female independents. I think the media were outflanked as well because the storytelling that they like to tell is who will the one big strong leader be? Who will our silverback gorilla be? Who will be the alpha male that will run our country and manage our economy after the election? And of course, what our constitution requires us to do is elect 151 people to the House of Representatives and 76 senators. The Constitution doesn't even mention the Prime Minister, but the media really enjoy the ScoMo versus Albo spendometer. Where did they spend their time? You know, which marginal electorates are they stopping in today? That's cheap coverage, literally cheap, doesn't mm. cost a lot. But the fact that so many young people have tuned out and so many independents and independent voters have tuned in, maybe that suggests things might change. Yeah. Well, it is true that that narrative around the independence was pretty brutal, even right at the beginning in the the press, particularly all the op-eds saying, oh, these independents, they're going to be, you know, nothing to us and dismissing their presence. It seems that that was a pretty big oversight on the part, especially of Liberal National politicians, but also their supporters, the, the kind of vocal supporters who've been writing opinion pieces about them. But Richard, I am interested in how the independents, the Greens might be able to shape this next parliament, because that is something we have seen at a smaller scale in the Senate. But obviously, I'm thinking particularly the minority Gillard government we saw a while back. And that was shocking at the time when we were seeing these negotiations play out because it wasn't really the norm. But that is still 
unfortunately or maybe fortunately, one of the options on the table on Saturday, depending on how many seats are reached by each party. And I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of that being a potential outcome and the kind of benefits that might be brought to bear on government and the role of government, just as you've outlined the important role of government in your last book. Uh, look, I, I think that, you know, for, for whatever reason, the media in Australia, certainly the major political parties, for more obvious reasons, and a lot of voters are very scared of independence. They're scared of the so-called chaos of minority government. But, you know, I'm speaking to you today from the People's Republic of the ACT, <laughs> where we've been in minority Labor-Green government for nearly 20 years. And it's just hell. It's just hell here. I don't know how we get anything done, but we seem to have the highest incomes and best schools and, you know, one of the happiest populations in the country. So-called minority government or hung parliaments are so common at the state level. Uh, they're so common around the world. And, you know, here's a tip. They're just going to become more common in our federal parliament. And, and the sooner people cope with that... Uh, the sooner we'll be able to actually get the best out of that. So, you know, if you think back to the Labor-Green federal minority government, yeah, the chaos, the chaos. Uh, yeah, well, it, it, it passed more legislation than, than any subsequent parliament. It created things like a carbon price and an NDIS. And, of course, part of the deal that the Greens struck with Julia Gillard was the formation of bits of really important infrastructure like the Parliamentary Budget Office, which has provided so much support and so much scrutiny to the Parliament. So, yeah, I think if we kind of get over this message of chaos uh, and actually think, all right, well, how can we kind of get the best out of this? You know, there's, there's huge possibilities. And, and just to give people a sense of it, I mean, the Constitution's quite clear. Uh, there's no mention of the Prime Minister in the Constitution, but by convention we all know what one is and what one does. Whoever's Prime Minister after the next election, if their party doesn't have a majority of votes in the lower house, then they'll have to talk to other parliamentarians to see if they can get support for it. So let's say we've got a, a Labor minority government, that is, there aren't enough members of the Labor Party themselves to get a bill turned into a law, then on every bill that would mean that maybe they'd have to say to the Liberals, are you going to support this one? And to be clear, the Labor and Liberal Party vote together on bills all the time, like it's not actually surprising or controversial. They might also have to go and talk to the National Party. They could go and talk to the Greens. They could go and talk to one or more of the independents. So whoever's in government has multiple passages. If they're in a minority government, they have multiple passages to a majority. And, you know, if, if, if an incumbent government couldn't talk anyone else into parliament into supporting their idea, well, it's probably not a very good idea. <laughs> and it really is as simple as that. So, you know, I think you listen to Scott Morrison on 7.30 and basically saying we could have never got through the COVID crisis if I had to go and consult with people on the crossbench. But this man had to pay $20 billion to Barnaby Joyce to let for Barnaby's permission to say the meaningless word net zero by 2050, right? So, yeah. you know, prime ministers always have to talk someone into supporting them. And I actually think it's better that that conversation takes place on the floor of the parliament than in, you know, in Barnaby, jo uh, Barnaby Jones, Barnaby <laughs> Joyce's back office.
Yes. Yeah. Well, Barnaby Joyce is now splashing that cash around the uh, the country and uh, it's kind of clear what his intentions were at the time of those net zero negotiations now. And I think it was obvious at the time too, but it's definitely playing out now. It does seem that minority government could almost be more democratic, Richard, in the sense that I would imagine if we were in another pandemic or emergency situation, independents, I doubt, especially these independents, wouldn't necessarily stall progress. I think they potentially would add to the progress. They would provide helpful input, especially when we saw a kind of command and control approach from Scott Morrison, which at times meant that he would just sit back and wait until something got really bad, or he would come in and do something completely wrong, and then you'd have to go in and fix it. It seems that when you have more people around the table who are different, you might actually end up getting better outcomes. Well, that's right. And, and you know, again, this doesn't kind of fit with the simplistic sort of narrative. But, but look, to be clear, prime ministers, opposition leaders and most of the media prefer of, you know, who will be the silverback gorilla in charge. And then if you know who that is, they'll be able to tell you exactly what's going to happen for the next mm. three years because they will be done. That's just not how parliament has ever worked. And, you know, just to make it slightly more complex... Um, Of course, no matter who wins uh, in this election, neither the Labor Party nor the Coalition expect to have a majority in the Senate. So this idea that if you have a majority in the lower house, then after you make your decree that a law will become a law, that the parliament will rubber stamp that, that's almost never the case. And it certainly won't be the case after this election. So even if Labor forms a majority government or the coalition forms a majority government, they're still going to, on every piece of legislation, every single one, have to consult with the Greens, the crossbench or the other major party to secure a majority to get through the Senate. And that's ever been thus. Uh, It's not a design flaw of our constitution, our constitution actually wanted it to be hard to change the law, right? The whole point of our constitution was to have two houses of parliament, both with the powers uh, to to prevent uh, a law being made, precisely because the people that drafted the constitution didn't want anyone to be able to win an election one day and change everything the next day. So it's actually a very conservative instrument, our constitution. It's not, uh, It's not. you know, look at the trouble we've had, for example, with things like a voice to parliament. It's hard to change things in Australia, but that was by design. And regardless of who does or doesn't win a majority in the lower house, that's what's going to happen in the upper house. And people don't often join the dots on this, but I, I think one of the main reasons that Julia Gillard was so successful passing so much legislation of such significance was that having done a deal to form a minority government with the Greens in the lower house, the Greens never once voted against a significant piece of legislation in the upper house. So that is by actually having to negotiate in the lower house, by the time the bill made it to the Senate, it was in good shape and, and, and the majority was virtually assured. So I think there's a real lesson there for whoever wins at this election. If you take the need to get a bill through the Senate seriously, the trick is to negotiate before 
before the legislation hits the table, make it clear that you're willing to talk to people. And then you've got a much greater chance of seeing your ideas turned into laws. That's a really great point, Richard. And um, I hope that people do learn that lesson. I was really interested in last week's debate around real wages growth. This is something which journalists were trying to catch Anthony Albanese on when the journalist at a press conference asked, you said that you don't want people to go backwards. This is on wages. Does that mean that you would support a wage hike of 5.1% just to keep up with inflation? And then Anthony Albanese replied, absolutely. And they were talking about the minimum wage, which the Fair Work Commission sets, and Uh, It was amazing to watch all of these different players in politics kind of be up in arms and Scott Morrison calling Anthony Albanese a loose unit, which apparently is a compliment in young people language, and I didn't realise that. (laughs) So that was quite amusing. But, um, yeah, it, it was this kind of suggestion that he was making up policy on the run and, you know, everyone's trying to suggest that there's going to be all this uncertainty around Anthony Albanese and his way of managing the economy but it clearly wasn't really the reality. And I wondered if you could actually explain what happened there and perhaps counter this argument that if you increased the minimum wage by a dollar an hour, by 5.1%, you know, that it would end up increasing inflation and, and wrecking the economy. It seemed like the sky was going to fall in if somehow people's wages didn't go backwards. So I wonder, could you unpick what was happening there and the econobabble that was going on? Oh, yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, what we're... Well, again, we've finally seen some important points of difference, so that's good. But let, let's talk about the economics before the politics. Uh, the Reserve Bank's been telling us for years that we need to see real wages grow, that real wages growth in Australia has been too low and that we should do something about it. So to be crystal clear... Uh, well, actually, let's define things first. Uh, so... How much cash you get deposited into your bank account every fortnight is called your nominal wage. So, you know, your actual wage, the amount of dollars that land in your bank account. But when we talk about real wages, we talk about wages adjusted for inflation. So that gives us a sense of, well, what can you really buy with your income? Because if you were earning 200 bucks a week and you were, you know, you were just making do and the price of everything went up by 10%, then if if your income stayed the same, in real terms, you'd be worse off. You would really go out and buy less stuff with that $200. So if inflation, if the price of stuff's gone up 5%, wages need to rise by at least 5% just for you to kind of keep pace with the cost of living. And that's before you get a real pay rise. So uh, economists are, are, you know, I think overwhelmingly united in the idea that real wage growth is not just fair and good, it's, it's actually good for the economy. Because if you flip it on its head, if, if we had inflation and no one got a pay rise, then that would mean everyone would go out and buy less stuff. That would be far worse for small business than having to pay an extra dollar an hour to their staff. So, yeah, so the economics of wage growth are quite straightforward. Unless wages are growing faster, unless wages are growing faster than the rate of inflation, the rate at which prices are going up, people will be worse off. People will be unable to buy as much stuff. That'll be very bad for them. And it will actually be very bad for the economy as well. So it was entirely uncontroversial 
to hear the opposition leader say, of course he thinks that wages should rise by at least as much as inflation. It's really staggering to think that Scott Morrison, two weeks out from an election, thought promising that wages would always be lower under him uh, would be a winning (laughs) strategy. But also, you know, and I, I watched his interview on 7.30 report last night carefully, and at one point he was saying that, Uh, Don't worry about sports rorts. It's only right that elected members of parliament decide where the money gets spent. He wasn't going to get told what to do by bureaucrats when it came to deciding, you know, where to splash cash around. That was a decision for members of parliament, not bureaucrats. But then when he was asked about wages, he said, oh, I think that's up to the Fair Work Commission. I'll leave that one to them. Mm. So we've we've got a prime minister that says... Oh no, I'm I'm very happy to decide, you know, who gets the novelty check for the new tennis courts. But when it comes to wage setting, oh, I'll 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 leave that to the bureaucrats. Yeah, absolutely. I did notice that in particular as well and um I spoke with Stephen Charles and Catherine Williams last week about their book on the Integrity Commission, and I thought he would really enjoy responding to that comment from Scott Morrison because uh yeah, there were so many problematic points in his answer. Richard, I wanted to talk about productivity growth because it did come up a lot last week and also it has come up throughout the election in different contexts. So in the one we were just talking about before, there was a suggestion that real wages should rise and that's a good thing. And unless they're outpacing productivity, there isn't a case to be made that they're going to drive inflation. So the point was that productivity was a key factor in wage growth and whether that would affect the economy negatively. And then there was another point which productivity has come up in the conversation, and that is, especially with labour, when there's a question of how are you going to get rid of debt and grow the economy, Anthony Albanese has said that he will be investing in different projects and programs, especially infrastructure, but also people that will increase productivity. Could you explain in like normal terms what is really going on there and if that's a realistic solution to debt? And I know we've also talked in the past about whether debt is even a bad thing to begin with, which is another point, but could you just explain what productivity means in these settings? Well, that's a very big question. So, I know. Uh, Sorry. It, no, no, but it, no, no, but it, no, it's a really important one. So let me let me start with defining what productivity is. Productivity is the ability of a person, a company, or a country to make more stuff per hour of time spent, or per ton of coal burned, or per unit of electricity consumed. So productivity means output per unit of input. So if I'm a barista working at a cafe, maybe I can make 100 coffees an hour. And if if someone trains me and gives me more skill, maybe I can boost my productivity and I can make 110 coffees an hour. Or maybe my boss buys a better coffee machine and I can now make 110 per hour. Or maybe we redesign the way the cafe is set up so that you know we can share the tasks differently. So anything that increases the ability to make stuff, to make stuff of similar quality quicker and more of it, boosts productivity. And ultimately, productivity is what drives economic growth. And productivity is what drives the fact that our standard of living 
in Australia today is so much higher than the standard of living in Australia 100 years ago. So think about how food was produced in Australia 100 years ago. Around 25% of Australians used to work in agriculture. It was back-breaking work. There weren't many tractors. There certainly wasn't GPS helping farmers to figure out, you know, which paddocks to plant in and, and, and when to fertilise and when to irrigate. So once upon a time, a quarter of our population was required to, to make food. These days, about 3% of us work in agriculture and we make far more food than we used to. So productivity growth is a great thing overall, but it's a devastating thing when it happens. I mean, tractors destroyed a lot of jobs. And this is where economists are often at odds with the rest of the public. Um, Labour-saving technology is overall, it's a great thing. The question is, how do we phase that in? How do we distribute the costs and benefits of those new technologies fairly? So what's all this got to do with debt? Well, if, and it's a big if, we could get productivity growth rising rapidly in Australia again, we used to have quite high productivity growth, but interestingly, for the last 10 years, it's a bit of a coincidence perhaps, it's actually been pretty low in Australia. But if we can grow the economy a lot, if we can grow our national income a lot, then the amount of debt we've got as a percentage of our income will shrink. Now, that's not the same thing as literally repaying the debt, but you know, think of it this way. If you've got a $10,000 debt, and you earn $10,000 a year, you're probably a bit more freaked out than if you've got a $10,000 debt and you earn a million dollars a year. So what the Prime Minister is saying is if we can get the economy growing, then, you know, as a percentage of our national income, our debt will just decline. And that's what happened after World War II. Um, so he's not wrong about that. But similarly, if he believes that now, why was he going on and on and on about debt and deficit disasters uh, back when they won office in 2013. Exactly. And I know that both leaders haven't necessarily wanted to confront the topic of debt in this election for obvious reasons, but it's something that journalists brought up even on budget night. There was this discussion about the amount of tax coming in to the government and that arbitrary cap that exists, especially uh, seems to be quite problematic, the, the cap that the coalition has set for tax that's taken. And I wondered if you had thoughts on the current levels of income coming in to the government through taxation and whether that is something that a future government, perhaps a Labor government, might be able to approach once it's actually in office. I know it's something they're not really keen on addressing now, except perhaps multinationals. But do you think it really is as much of an issue as journalists are saying? Uh, look, it's interesting. To some extent, I, I think that uh, a lot of the media are obsessed with things like the amount of debt, whereas what I think they really should be doing is 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 putting a lot more pressure on on both the government and the opposition to say, well, you know, you say we're going to grow our way out of this. You know, how exactly are you going to do that? Now, I would say that we can walk and chew gum. I mean, Australia is one of the lowest taxed countries in the developed world, and we have a small and increasingly ineffective public sector. Our health system is just not as good as we tell ourselves it is. And sure, you might have a Medicare card, but you know you need to use your credit card at the same time. 
you know, most of Northern Europe takes free universities and free childcare for granted. In Australia, we slashed taxes and said, now you're free to go and spend a hundred bucks a day on your kids' childcare. So for me, I think they're they're quite separate things, even though the media tend to combine them. So yes, economic growth over the coming decades will lead to our current level of debt shrinking as a percentage of GDP, but I still think that we should be increasing our tax revenues in Australia quite significantly for a number of reasons, but primarily to significantly reshape the Australian economy to redistribute income and to uh, invest in the services that don't just drive down the cost of living and don't just create the most jobs per dollar spent. So I'm talking here about childcare and aged care, for example, but they will actually boost the productivity that both major parties are saying that they're going to rely on. So if we can get a lot more parents, particularly women in Australia, back into the labour force when they feel like it after having a kid, if we remove the barrier of expensive childcare, then Australia's GDP will rise more quickly and productivity will rise more quickly if we do that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of efficiently and equitably collecting more tax not just from multinationals. I think we need to close a lot of tax loopholes and, frankly, I think the Stage 3 tax cuts that will soon deliver uh, $9,000 a year in tax cuts to people earning over $200,000. I think those tax cuts that were designed pre-COVID, that were designed before we had uh, the, the budget deficit we have and the problems that we now have in society... I think those stage three tax cuts should be delayed at at an absolute minimum because I think if we collected more tax and spent more money on government services, we would, as I said, we we wouldn't just create a lot of jobs and reduce the cost of living. We'd, We'd reshape the economy in a way that was nicer to live in and more productive. Win win. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought up the stage three tax cuts because that is something that Labor has supported. And so there isn't a difference between the parties on that one. It has already been legislated to happen. But as you say, we should be agile and when circumstances change, perhaps reevaluate our decisions and whether they're appropriate for the times. But one of the interesting parts of this, and it came up as well at the budget, was that it's not necessarily all sunshine and roses. Like this was supposed to apparently address bracket creep, but According to some analyses, it shows that a lot of the um, low to middle income earners are going to be worse off. And as you point out, the high income earners are going to be absolutely delighted at uh, what's going on with their tax assessments. So I I wonder, did you have a view on that? And is that your assessment as well, that it might actually increase inequality or at least cause a, a more negative outcome for some people in the income tax system? There is absolutely no doubt we are about to make the tax system less progressive. We're about to increase the gap between those with the most and those with the least. And from from July 1 onwards, low to middle income earners will be paying more tax. This is unambiguously the case. The removal of the low income tax offset will mean that low to middle income earners will be paying more tax next year than they did this year. But the year after that, the so-called stage three tax cuts will come in and deliver enormous tax cuts to high income earners. 
So there is just there is no room for ambiguity in any of this. Low to middle income earners are about to be paying more tax, and high income earners are about to be paying less tax. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing else to it. Yeah, no, I was really disappointed that it wasn't so vocally spoken about that removal of the low and middle income and a tax offset and what the implications of that are, especially in this election. Richard, just with the Greens, because I know that many listening will be interested in what their policies are, and Adam Band in the National Press Club yesterday spoke in front of Clive Palmer, who was in the audience, saying that I'm going to tax Clive Palmer more to pay for your teeth. And so essentially the Greens have quite a big plan or a a kind of wish list, I should say, um, if they should have a, a strong position in the Senate or in the lower house or both. And that is that they wanted to place a new corporate super profits tax of 40% on big corporations and introduce an annual extra 6% wealth tax on billionaires. They also want to crack down on multinational tax avoidance, which I'm sure is pretty uncontroversial for Labor, for example. What do you think of their policies and that focus on the really high end, the corporations, but also those high income earners that are up in the millionaires and the billionaires? Oh, well, I think it's a combination of good policy and good politics. It's just way outside of the polite parameters of Australian political debate. <laughs> but, you know, let's be clear, other countries tax wealth. Other countries tax, uh, well, we already uh, tax the banks. We have a, a super profits tax on the banks introduced by the Liberal Party. So nothing that the Greens have proposed is economically heretical. And Richard, are you there? I think we just lost Richard. Let me see if I can call him back very quickly. Excuse me, everyone, while we get him back on the line. Richard Dennis. There you go, Richard. Oh, <laughs> We're back on air. Yeah. You even talk about these things and you get cut off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, we brought up taxing billionaires and the universe yeah. is telling us something. <laughs> yeah, this is spooky, spooky. Even community radio. I've been silenced, oh. silenced, I tell you. Been platformed. Um, no, so, look, nothing they're saying is, is heretical to, to mainstream economics. These are entirely democratic choices about how big a public sector we want to have in Australia and, and which parts of the economy we think can afford to, to, to make a contribution towards that. And there is no right economic answer. There's only democracy. So, again, you know, wealth taxes exist in the US, wealth taxes exist in Europe, and America hasn't fallen over and Europe hasn't fallen over. And the Liberals introduced a, a super profits tax on the banks. So clearly they don't think that's a terrible idea. We're just haggling about should other industries pay it and how much. Mm. So, no, I, I think that in a democracy we should have people putting forward a positive case, as I said before, for, for the role of the state. And, and I think it's only responsible to say, uh, and, you know, this will take a lot of resources to do this and in terms and we're willing to take spending power, take resources away from people who we don't think needed as much to spend it on these other things that will, as I said before, increase equity, uh, reduce inequality, and I'd suggest boost productivity. So no, look, it will be quite shocking for some to hear that a political party would propose such things 
in Australia, but I, I assure them if if they compare Australia and the way we tax resources, for example, to Norway or or indeed to Saudi Arabia, uh, they'd see that other resource countries have well and truly got into the habit of uh, of taxing big companies and uh, and spending a lot more money on their communities. Mm, that's a really excellent point, Richard, making the international comparisons. I want to bring it back down domestically, and I know this is front of mind for you as well as people listening, because it was part of Scott Morrison and the Liberal Party's campaign launch, which happened on Sunday. There were two announcements around property, one about older Australians who uh, now I think the cutoff is 55, who might want to downsize their property and move into a smaller property. And then there was also one about younger people, particularly first home buyers, who at this point probably aren't necessarily that young. There are plenty of people in their 40s and 50s who don't own a home, but this was around taking some of your superannuation up to 40% of it, which could be up to $50,000, and putting that towards a house deposit if you already have 5% of that deposit saved up, buying that house, and then should you sell it, putting that money that you took out of super back in at probably a much later date and putting some of the capital gains back in if, in fact, that did occur. This policy has been... I don't want to say it, but um, shit panned by pretty much <laughs> every Liberal MP or frontbencher I have seen in recent times, including Malcolm Turnbull, Peter Dutton, Susan Lee, Christopher Pine, John Howard, including many economists, including obviously the superannuation funds who don't want to have to add more liquidity to their investment portfolios. It's kind of hard to see many people supporting it, except perhaps the property sector Richard, could you tell us, you know, what is your evaluation of the housing policies of the two parties, especially in the context of this last minute policy drop, which it seems that Scott Morrison is trying to, I, I guess, entice younger people with saying that it's your money, so you should be able to use it? Yeah, look, let, let's be clear, if neither major party is, is going to the election with any sort of promise that's going to have any significant downward pressure on the price of housing in Australia. And if any party did do that, the two-thirds of Australians who already own a house would be in uproar. So the fact that, you know, that all the people that own houses don't feel threatened by anything that you've heard during the election is proof positive that neither major party has got significant plans that will make houses cheaper. Ironically, pretty much everything being proposed is going to make houses dearer, but under pressure, again, both parties admit that because what they're putting forward is so small, it'll only make things a little bit dearer. So we need to think about prices being set by supply and demand. And what's happening is that we have Labor saying, look, we, we can help get you into the market a bit earlier because we'll kind of, we'll go halves with you. We'll be the bank of M&D for you. So that's going to put more customers at the auction. And you've also got the coalition offering uh, to say, look, we'll, we'll help you get in with a lower deposit. And now they're saying, oh, and you can even pull your money out of super to get your deposit. So what everyone's proposing is to help send more people to the same auctions with more money in their pocket than they used to have. So there's only one thing that can happen, and that's for prices to go up. 
And I hate to tell you, that's why it's politically popular, because the third that are trying to get in think that it's going to help them, and the two-thirds that already own a house know it's going to help them, because sending more people with more money in their pockets to the auctions is just going to push up the price of houses for the people who already own them. So I, I, don't get me wrong, I think the, the coalition's policy of letting people pull money out of their super is particularly egregious. I think that it will cause more impact on prices and come at a bigger long-term cost. But you know, in Australia, the political reality is because two-thirds of people don't want to see their house prices fall, we just have to keep coming up with policies that don't threaten those two-thirds of people. So we come up with things that, that look like they help the other third, which end up just actually helping the two-thirds. Yeah, it's it's so depressing when you say it like that, but it is very true. And um, if we even look at the things like who might even be able to use this program, they'll be generally over their 40s because the average super balance of someone in their 40s is 107K. And if you wanted to access the full 50,000, you'd need 125,000 in your super balance. So it is this kind of smoke and mirrors type of policy. But I was also concerned that we're often told when we're given this superannuation education training that, you know, compound interest is really important and it happens, especially in your 30s. It starts to kind of pick up and really grow. And it seems that um, the government is implying that this is the best time to take out your super and remove the compound interest that would start accruing. So I guess it just seemed to me to be counterintuitive in every single way. And perhaps it is one of those major ideological differences between the two parties. Oh, look, I think the, the timing is all about when the election is, not yeah. when it's good for people to be putting money in or taking money out of their super. But again, you know, it's a democracy and it's good that the different parties take different ideas to the electorate. Uh, and I think it's good that the opposition, having matched a lot of smaller coalition policies on this one, just said, no, we're, we're not going to do that. But Look, it's terribly frustrating and indeed quite scary for a lot of people, not just young people, but a lot of people that do want to buy a house. And unfortunately, they are being misled and they have been misled by successive governments, state and federal. But, you know, here's, here's the sort of fancy economic way of thinking about it, but it's, it's really quite simple. Economists have this term called the fallacy of composition, and the fallacy of composition, all it means is that we often think that just because something works for one person, it'll work for every person. And because people rely really, really heavily on anecdotes and personal experience to understand how the world works, the fallacy of composition is a very powerful trick that people fall for. So everyone knows that they've got a friend whose mum and dad lent them some money, and because their mum and dad lent them some money, they got into the housing market early and they're rich now. Everyone knows that story. Everyone knows that person. So the fallacy of composition kicks in where we tell ourselves, if only all of our mums and dads, or indeed the government, would lend us all some money, we could all go out and we could all get into the housing market a bit early and we'd all be rich. But no. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't work like that. It only worked for your friend because you didn't go to the auction and bid against your friend. It only worked because we were treating your friend special. Now, as a former academic, if I write a reference for someone that says, this person's a genius, 
you'd be mad to not give them a job, that student's happy. They think, wow, that's going to help me at my job interview. But if every lecturer wrote that about every student, guess what? It wouldn't help anybody <laughs> at all. So, yeah, unfortunately, we're, we're trained to think through the prism of our own personal experience and therefore, when a politician says, oh, I'm going to give you a first homeowner's grant of 10000 bucks, that'll help you get into the home loan market. Well, if you don't realise that if everyone got the same ten grand, you did not get a head start, but everyone who owns their house just went, oh, thanks for the ten grand. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, for coming, thanks for coming to the auction for my existing house and bidding more for it. Uh, that's the problem. People... You know, and politicians manipulate people into feeling special. But when you tell everyone special, then no one's special. And that's that's what's happening with our housing market. Very well said, Richard. Uh, that makes it crystal clear. Just finally, I wanted to finish on something which I think is one of the biggest impressions that voters might be getting at the moment, and it is in all the negative advertising we're seeing, is that the Liberal Nationals are, quote, stronger on the economy, and it's something that we can't stop hearing is that Scott Morrison has an economic plan, and if he says plan enough, you start to think there's real detail behind it. Now, we're hearing all these kind of jingles about there's a hole in my bucket and, you know, Labor hasn't done their costings and people are going to have to pay for it later on and we're all going to be somehow worse off because Labor don't cost things, they tax higher, they spend so much, blah, blah, blah. We know that that's not true and necessarily about taxing people higher because we heard Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers push back against Josh Frydenberg at the National Press Club on that particular claim. But I just wondered what your perspective was as an economist seeing this play out, especially with the coalition pushing this stronger economy, saying that we got you through um, the pandemic. We managed it so well. I mean, JobKeeper in many ways was helpful, but they weren't necessarily the first ones calling for it. And uh, they were almost pushed forward on many issues, not only by federal labour, but by the state premiers. So I guess I, I wondered if you had any kind of take or understanding of this, I guess, furphy that keeps being put forward and the fact that it does seem to gain a bit of traction. It's a familiar narrative and a lot of voters might end up falling into that trap when they've heard it so often it starts to gain currency and a certain level of truth. Oh, look, absolutely. It's 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 like, you know, when some kid at school gets a reputation for being uh, a bit of a troublemaker, it's hard to shake. Uh, or when the fans of a football team get a reputation for having some attribute, it becomes hard to shake. Again, this is this is how humans are. And for decades, Australians have been told, mainly by the Liberal Party and mainly by business groups that, that like the Liberals' policies, in particular tax cuts, that the Liberals have this unique skill in managing the economy. So, you know, where would I start? Well, I'd start with, well, what did they say they were going to try and do? According to them, in 2013, we had a debt and deficit disaster, and if we voted for them, we'd fix it. Well, they doubled the debt by the time COVID hit. So they've, they've failed on their own terms there. Now, sure, during COVID, when things got bad, they spent a lot of money and it worked a treat. And I'm glad they did it. But let's be clear, people like Scott Morrison had spent 20 years saying that economists like me calling for fiscal stimulus were wrong. For 20 years, Scott Morrison said he was a great economic manager because he ignored Keynesianism. 
And then when he finally embraced it, he's like, look what I did. I'm a great economic manager. Well, yeah, you finally did the right thing, but you know, you were wrong for 20 years before then. When Scott Morrison was treasurer, he said he was going to double Australia's productivity growth rate. It fell. And, you know, according to the pinko lefties at the International Monetary Fund, even Peter Costello and John Howard were by uh, by the international standards and by Australian standards, some of the most profligate spenders in Australian history. So, yeah, look, you know, it's very hard to change a narrative. It's very hard to convince people that, you know, the preconceived views might not really be based on facts. But, you know, if you look at the scoreboard, you look at the, the, the problems that the Liberals said they were going to fix, they said they were going to fix the deficit. They didn't. They were wrong about it, but that's the point. <laughs> they said they'd boost productivity. They didn't. They forecast real wage growth in every budget, and it's never showed up. So, yeah, if, if, if you just score them according to their own criteria, uh, then they've, they've clearly failed on, on, on all the major fronts. Yeah, absolutely. And we have seen, you know, in their costings that's just come out that apparently they're going to continue to gut the public service by finding so-called efficiency dividends. So we're also going to see an ongoing undermining of public service experience under a coalition government, whereas with the Labor Party, they have actually committed to increasing the public service and its expertise. So that's another clear difference between the two parties that is worth highlighting. Oh, look, absolutely. And and the Australia Institute did some research earlier this year pointing out that, um, you know, the the, the current government's spending so much on outsourced consultants uh, that if it scrapped them, it could employ over 10,000 public servants to to do the simple policy work that was once done in-house. And now former public servants are paid much higher prices and are much Mm. higher wages to do it externally. And people often get confused about why. I think there's a very simple answer. When public servants do the work, it can be accessed by freedom of information. When public servants do the work, they can be called to appear before Senate estimates. When public servants do the work, they're governed by the National Archives Act. But once you outsource the work, then it's invisible and there's no accountability and there's no transparency and large amounts of our money are being spent paying for often quite B-grade work done by external consultants at a much higher price. Yeah, well, that is a really excellent point, Richard. Thank you so much for illuminating so many of these topics for me and for those listening. I know it would have been absolutely invaluable to those still trying to make up their minds as to what to do this election. And I hope that the rest of the week goes well for you. I'm sure it's going to be an intense one for many at the Australia Institute and for myself as well and for maybe some people listening. So, yeah, I really appreciate your time today, Richard, and all the best for Saturday night. Oh, thank you. And thanks for actually talking about policy on your program. You know, it really... Yeah, as I said before, who we elect determines what problems we solve. And, you know, there's there's policies we need to look at and there's which problems we're going to prioritise. And that's that's why elections really do matter. So, no, thanks to Triple R for all you do and, and thanks to you, Amy. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Anytime. <laughs> I've just been chatting with Dr Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, and he has joined me just now for the final instalment of Uncommon Sense's Federal Election Policy Series 
on the economy in this instalment. And it's just been absolutely lovely chatting to Richard as always. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.